on the recorder. Okay, the tonight's the topic is Louis Jacobs. By a show of hands, who never heard of Louis Jacobs? Good. Good. Louis Jacobs. So, Louis Jacobs is a man who was turned into a villain. Sounds like a gangster. He was a British rabbi who was turned into a villain by the Orthodox establishment for reasons that you will decide tonight whether they are valid or invalid. But he was not a man who was looking for great renown. He was a fairly humble man who stumbled upon controversy that he wished he could get out of but never really did for the rest of his life. Louis Jacobs was born in Manchester in 1920, went to public school, went to the Manchester Yeshiva, then the Gateshead Colwell, University College in London where he got his PhD on uh, Jewish business practices in Babylonia in the Talmudic period. And yeah, he was also a graduate of Jews College. In 1945, he takes his first pulpit as the assistant rabbi in Golders Green at a very orthodox shul. In 1947, at the age of 27, he's made the rabbi of the Manchester Central Synagogue, a pretty prestigious pulpit for a young rabbi. 1954, he becomes the rabbi of the New West End Synagogue, a very prominent uh, synagogue in London, part of the United Synagogue system. And in 1957, he writes a book. The book's title is, We Have Reason to Believe. Now, with a title like We Have Reason to Believe, you'd figure he's uh, like uh, an evangelist, he's a, a real frummy who's trying to get people to believe. And yet, it was seen as ultimate heresy. We Have Reason to Believe was trashed as being unorthodox. But it didn't happen right away. What actually happened is that he gave a series of lectures in his synagogue in the New West End um, on matters of theology, on a diverse range of topics in Jewish th- thought, that was put into a small book of only about 130 pages, and when it was published, there was little excitement generated by that book. He gave it to Chief Rabbi Israel Brody, who didn't complain, probably because he didn't read it. Now, this was 1957. In 1960, Louis Jacobs was uh, appointed as the head of studies is like the number two position at Jews College. He is 40 years old at that point in time, rising through the ranks of Anglo, the Anglo rabbinate. He's got a PhD, he's got real smicha, he's a, a good speaker, he's a good thinker. He's on the up and up. And he has a bright career ahead of him. The appointment to be the head of studies at Jews College was thought to be the first step towards the next step, which would be being the principal of Jews College, which might later result in being the chief rabbi of the United Synagogue, the chief rabbi of England. Because Brody was not a young man. Brody would eventually have to retire. Uh, There was the forced retirement age, which which Brody would reach in 1965. And so, Louis Jacobs could be the next good candidate. Well, in 1961, Isidore Epstein retires as principal of Jews College after a long and illustrious career. And Louis Jacobs is appointed to be the principal of Jews College. But it doesn't go over well. Alfred Silverman, who was the secretary of the Honorary Board of Trustees of United Synagogue, objects to his appointment and tells Brody, you have to reject him. Why? 
he's heterodox. If you read his works, he's not a, tr- a traditional believer. So even though he's a prominent rabbi and everyone likes him, you gotta you gotta prevent this appointment. Can't make, can't let it happen. Heterodox, non-orthodox. Um, that means I can ride on Shabbos or just men and women sit in shul? You're, you're, you're addressing matters of observance. This all has to do with matters of theology, not observance. Okay. So, uh, Brody decides he'll reject the appointment, which is his prerogative as the chief rabbi. No, eventually he did. In 57, when it was first published, it didn't cause uh, uh, um, Jacobs any trouble because the, author- the, the powers that be in the ecclesiastical hierarchy didn't read it. But then when someone complains, so people read it. It was good for sales. It went through multiple editions. I, the one I have here is the fifth edition. Uh, but there were thousands and thousands of copies were sold. Uh, he did, yeah. Okay. So, Jacobs... Um, claimed that he reasonably believed his book would not cause any controversy in the tepid orthodoxy that was Anglo-Orthodoxy. In other words, these are not uh, extremist fundamentalists, the likes of which live in you know, Poland or Hungary before the war. This is British Jewry, and he didn't think his book would uh, result in the alarms uh, sounding. uh, No, it was not intended as an insult, and it was actually a reasonable assessment of the state of Anglo Jewry. Uh, But in any event, his appointment was rejected. That said, guy's got to work for a living. So in 1964, uh, the New West End Synagogue, who had a new rabbi in between, because uh, Jacobs had left to go to Jews College, that rabbi uh, left to go to America. And so the position is now available. And his former congregants are interested in having him back. You know, he's a great rabbi, let's bring him back. And we don't think that his uh, theological uh, viewpoint is objectionable in the least. So the problem is that all uh, appointments for the clergy in the United Synagogue House of Worship have to be approved by the chief rabbi. You have to get a certificate of approval. Well, Louis Jacobs had a certificate of approval when he served in Manchester, and when he was first appointed to the New West End. So the question is, is his old uh, driver's license good in the, in, the, in the current climate? And the answer is no, you have to get a new one. And what's Brody going to do? He's going to reject him again. So a man couldn't serve in his own shul that he had previously uh, been the rabbi of for five years because the authorities say he is now uh, not a, 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 a true thinker, a, tr- a true orthodox believer. Brody alone in this rejection? Okay, so what happened? Brody offended the president of the United Synagogue, Mr. Montague, who was from the old prestigious Mm -hmm. British Jewish families. So Montague resigned, and most of the board members of the United Synagogue resigned in a a fit of protest. What ended up happening is that Sir Isaac Wolfson took on the role of president of the United Synagogue, and he was in favor of keeping Louis Jacobs out. And so he was aligned with Brody on the, uh, the harsh position of keeping anyone who's not towing the Orthodox line out of the United Synagogue. Is he the one who built the I, I think that's the same Wilson, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of theology. We're, we're going to spend most of tonight's session examining what did Louis Jacobs actually write and what was uh, objectionable or good about his writings. Okay. So, Jacobs is now without work. 
but his congregants are also without a rabbi that they like. So what do you do when you have a rabbi who needs work and congregants who like a free, a free agent rabbi? Start a new shul. Okay. So they got lucky. They got lucky. It, it just so happened that the St. John's Wood Synagogue, one of the most prestigious synagogues in, in England, was in the process of moving from one location to another a mile down the road. And so the old building was up for sale. And unbeknownst to the, uh, the leadership of the, of the St. John Woods Wood Synagogue, the, the purchasers of the building had every intention of using it for a Jewish house of worship and making Louis Jacobs their rabbi. Sometimes that happens where you have uh, someone who buys the property without telling the, uh, the sellers what the real intention is. So the New London Synagogue was established as... In effect, a quasi-Orthodox synagogue, not under the auspices of the chief rabbi of the United Synagogue, and at a wonderful location, a good building, with Louis Jacobs as the rabbi, where he would remain until he retired in 2001. So he would serve for 30-some-odd years in that uh, capacity. Okay. How many members did they have? Oh, it became a very large synagogue. So, was there competition? Yeah. Was there any problems that he wasn't affiliated? For example, recognizing marriages and everything? Okay, so um, eventually the Masorti movement, which develops out of the New London Synagogue, and today I believe has seven congregations in England, uh, does have the right to officiate solemnized marriages uh, because they are recognized as a Jewish institution. Uh, even though they're not an Orthodox one, then again, neither were the Reformers. But Hertz also had to concede to the Reformers that they were a Jewish institution and could solemnize marriages. Okay, um, that synagogue began as an orthoprax synagogue. Orthoprax meaning uh, following the same ritual patterns of separate seating and the uh, traditional prayer book as would any, any orthodox synagogue. It's just that the clergy is free to speak their mind in ways that would be inappropriate in an orthodox setting. Eventually, it would morph into what is the British equivalent of conservative Judaism, but that would be a few decades down the road. And even then, uh, it would be much more traditional than the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism is today, uh, more along the lines of what it was 50, 60 years ago. Okay. Jacobs had a decent relationship after Brody retired with Brody's successor, Chief Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz. Uh, they got along reasonably well. They were both great intellectuals. But Jacobs did not get along so well with Jakovitz's successor, who was Chief Rabbi Sachs. And there was an incident in 2003, which was a very ugly incident. Uh, Louis Jacobs' granddaughter was getting married. It was the, the boy Zufruf, and it was a Shabbos before the wedding, and the, the Mishpacha getting aliyahs to the Torah, and Louis Jacob was denied an aliyah to the Torah by the ruling of, of Diane Ehrentrau and Chief Rabbi Sachs on the grounds that he is a heretic, that he can't legitimately say the bracha of Asher Bach, Abanami, Komi, Nasa, Lenu, So. So I, I guess the offer was not in the show. Uh, well, well, no, no, no. He had already retired, and it was in, a, it was in one of the United Synagogue houses of worship. And Sachs was not invited to the kiddush. Uh, I don't know who sponsored the kiddush. So th this goes to show you that a controversy that began with a book written in 1957 and boiled over in 1961 with the appointment to Jews College and 1964 with the, with the New West End Synagogue is still festering 40 years later in 2003 denying an old man an aliyah. Yeah. Okay. Now, during, during the... Uh, 
I guess not. Now, during the time that he was in the New London Synagogue, he also uh, taught in, in uh, Lancaster Univer- University, and uh, he taught at uh, Leo Beck College, which is the, the equivalent of Jews' college for the non-Orthodox, for the Reform, the Liberals, and the Masoreti, uh for the training of, of, of rabbis. So he, he had a, a nice career in the pulpit and in the academy, but he was never the chief rabbi people thought he would end up being. And in the words of some, he was the greatest chief rabbi British Jewry never had. <laughs> so, during the, the height of the controversy, it was being uh, recorded and uh, commented upon in the Jewish Chronicle, which was the leading Jewish newspaper in England. And the Jewish Chronicle's publisher had a soft spot in his heart for Louis Jacobs, and so the editorial page was sympathetic to the plight of the man who was being persecuted for his so-called heresy. But it wasn't just the Jewish media that was covering the story. Even the, 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 uh, the Times and the BBC, the mainstream uh, British media outlets, were following the story because it was interesting. Here, you know, the Jews, the Jews are excommunicating their own Pope. That's what, they, that's what the, uh, the headlines would say. Um, in 2006, it was the 350th anniversary of British Jewry, uh, the restored British Jewry after Cromwell. And surveys were done as to who was the greatest British Jew of all time. And almost every survey taken had Louis Jacobs at the top. <laughs> so it goes to show you that those who were his adversaries, political adversaries and you know, theological opponents, did not convinced the masses that this man was bad for Judaism. Far from it. He was 86 and he died that year. He died that year. Okay. He was a very observant man. Very, very observant man. So let's now take a look at what did he actually write that got got him so into trouble with we have reason to believe. Okay. So, there are about 10 topics covered in the book. And they're not necessarily related to each other. Uh, Most of them relate to theology, but some are just general Jewish thought. The first topic is, what is meant by God? And he takes on Mordechai Kaplan. So bear in mind, this book is being written not for the sake of causing trouble. This book is being written by a man who holds an orthodox pulpit trying to convince skeptical modern Jews that they have reason to believe that despite whatever they might have learned in university, whatever uh, uh, intellectual attacks there have been on tradition and on classical belief, nonetheless, even the educated person has reason to believe. So keep that in mind as as we we, uh, go through all these points. What is meant by God? So he explains that the theistic versus the humanistic. The traditional Jewish point of view is a theistic point of view. God has an actual personality, however you conceive of it, uh, incorporeal or not. The point is God is a real entity, has an independent existence, as opposed to the Reconstructionist thought of Mordechai Kaplan, where God is to be found in the universe, in the processes of the universe, but God doesn't actually have an independent existence. When we get to Mordechai Kaplan, whom we'll discuss in a few weeks from now, we'll delve into this more uh, deeply, is Reconstructionism basically warmed over atheism. Many, many people would argue that it is. Um, and Jacobs was here to not 
call it atheism, but to say that it's not traditional Jewish belief, the humanistic point of view, that the theistic point of view is what Jews should in fact believe and have reason to believe. Nothing. He's expressing an orthodox point of view about God. He's expressing a Maimonidian point of view. Now, he had a great line that I want to quote to you. Uh, The reform in America and in Germany were radical in the sense that they abolished the the practical observance of many mitzvot, of ritual laws. Right, no kosher, no Shabbos to any significant extent, nobody's putting tefillin in a reform shul, but they believe in God. Whereas the Reconstructionists, along the lines of Kaplan, favored the retention of many ceremonial rituals, but jettisoned almost completely the idea of God. And so he said... While classical reform was eating treif and thinking kosher, the Reconstructionists were eating kosher and thinking treif. That's one of the great lines of all time. Uh, and, he, and he's absolutely right on target. So here he is presenting a traditional point of view about belief. Did they have Set- Reconstructionists in the United Kingdom? No, no. No. So who's, who's, who's he writing the book for? Well, there's no Reconstructionists uh, movement, but there are still people who read Kaplan and, and who might believe his ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not a big... Uh, there, there, there's no big constituency for, for Kaplanian Judaism in, in England. Second chapter is about the proof of God's existence. He says that the ancient world, even the heretics didn't deny that God existed... What made people heretics in the old world is they thought that there was um, there was no din and no dayan. Les din, les dayan. Uh, if you behave badly, there's no punishment for your bad behavior because the creator of the world, who definitely does exist and created the world, just isn't interested in what's going on here so we can get away with stuff. That was, that's what made you a heretic in the old days. But n- basically, basically, yes. Basically, yes. So... He said there were, there were no atheists in the old world. It, uh, the assumption of God's existence was uh, nearly across the board. But in modern thought, people want proof of God's existence. And the uh, ontological proof, and the teleological proof, all the various proofs of God's existence have all been weakened, if not refuted, by modern philosophy. But he said that they haven't been entirely refuted. They've simply been weakened. And the cumulative effect of all the various weakened proofs put together result in not proof of God's existence, but a reasonable person could have conviction that God does exist. What he's basically saying is we don't need absolute scientific, you know, black and white proof of God. We simply need to have good enough convincing evidence to make ourselves into believers. Right, that's what he's arguing. There's an element of faith in this. We're not going to be able to prove absolutely, so you're going to have to take a, 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 a certain leap that is not a big, big leap, but is something of a leap. Yeah. I would imagine that writing this not so many years after the Holocaust, uh-huh. it was a very you know, robust issue. Right, for pl- plenty of people who were questioning, and there were plenty of Holocaust survivors who made their way to England by the 1950s, and yeah, there, there, are, there are those who are living intensely Jewish lives because they never gave up the piety of their youth, but in the back of their minds, they're wondering what's really going on upstairs. Okay, now the third topic is, is religious faith an illusion? 
taking on Freud. Mm. Freud who would argue that uh, people believe just because they want to convince themselves of some greater truth, but it's really all uh, uh, you know, a falsehood. So he, he says that Freud's dis- dismissive attitude is unwarranted. And the strongest proof of God's existence and that religious faith is not an illusion is the survival of the Jewish people. Which is an argument that some have made over the years that the, uh, the, continued ex- you know, the long-term existence of Am Yisrael as a persecuted people despite the persecution or continued survival is a, a way of, show, uh, of, if not proof, evidence of uh, there being a God. Then he goes on to the problem of pain. Basically the problem of theodicy, but not just theodicy uh, in terms of, uh, you know, why do the righteous die or, the, or, or the, uh, the wicked have it good. The problem of pain, why is there suffering among the Holocaust generation? Why, why, why did our people have to go through such difficulties? And he addresses the Augustinian approach, uh, well, uh, question of God is either not all good or not omnipotent. And he says he doesn't have a strong answer for this. It's the most challenging question of them all. Even more difficult than God's existence is the issue of his God. If, how could God be all good and omnipotent and there be evil and there be pain in the, and suffering in the world? And he was one of the most important points of the whole book is he says you can't be cavalier in giving a simplistic or even a complicated answer. Any attempt to give an answer is a, to an extent hubris, and so he doesn't really offer one. Okay, all right, so, uh, but his, his point is that he knows others are addressing the topic and offering solutions that might be offensive to some people, and who's to say they're even halfway right? So he says, you've got to be careful before you offer a solution to that problem. Not that he's denying there is one. He's simply, uh, this is not the place to, 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 to offer it. Yeah. Okay, the next piece is what got him in trouble. The Torah and modern criticism. See, up until now, most of what he's written has been within you know, the, the bounds of uh, mainstream orthodoxy. We get the Torah and modern criticism. So he says that the, um, the Jewish theistic point of view rejects the idea that a human personality was the source of revelation, which is a fancy way of saying that you have to have some belief in... Uh, God's involvement in our religious heritage. To what extent? Do, do we say revelation was literal, verbal, a dictation? Well, he'll, he'll get to that soon. But you can't claim to be a real theistic believer in the Jewish sense and say that the totality of our library on the shelf there is a human product. If you say that, you're not a traditional believer. Okay, but that said... What do people actually think? So he goes through the traditional point of view and then the critical point of view. So the traditional point of view of Torah Min is that there was verbal dictation by God to Moses of the Pentateuch from Bereshis, from the bays of Bereshis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to the Lamed of Le'enei Chol Yisroel uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Or maybe eight verses earlier, before Moshe dies, uh, according to the Gemara Babas, when Yeshua wrote the last eight lines. But the point is, direct dictation, God to Moses, of the text of the Hamisha Chumshev Torah. Okay, now that said, you have criticism of the Bible. Lower and higher criticism. 
lower criticism is willing to accept the antiquity of the Bible and maybe even the uh, divine origins of the Bible, but that the text that we have has minor flaws along the way that can be noticed by careful philological study, and not that it's going to be corrected, but we should simply point out when the text is a little bit off. What's the, what's the classic uh, example of lower criticism of the Bible? Give me one, one example. Jacob and the stone. What about it, yeah? There was one stone, many stones. He woke up and there was one stone under his head. So that, the, 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 the Bible critics typically don't, don't latch on to because there are reasonable homiletic explanations for that. No, I'll, give me another, another example. So, right, so I'll give you just one example. What's the problematic word? Achar. What should it really be according to the critics? Echad. He found one ram. Not achar nechaz basvach. The word achar doesn't make any sense in the context. So the dalad and the resh, some, a scribe made a mistake, or you, you couldn't, uh, the, the end of the dalad got cut off, it became a resh. That's, a, that's an example of lower criticism. It's not going to make or break Judaism if uh, one letter had, was a problem over the years. Uh, okay, uh, it's true. But this says lower criticism. But on the other hand, you can say, even though that's lower criticism, yeah. there is there is a, a pagam uh-huh. that may not be the only one around. I mean, you're, you're taking a ration of dollars. Okay, so another one. Parshas Vayelech Moshe. Vaydeber atadvarim elel kol Yisrael. Vayelech Moshe, where did he go? Doesn't say. What's the classic rabbi joke? How do you know Moshe wore a yarmulke? Says Vayelech Moshe. You think he walked without a yarmulke? <laughs> so, no. So, so what do the the lower critics say? It's not Vayelech. It's Vayechal. Transpose the Chaf and the Lamed. He finished saying all these things to call Yisrael. So the point of all this exercise is that lower criticism doesn't make or break religion. It just is uh, nitpicking the details of the Bible. But higher criticism is much more problematic. What is the the, the typical or conventional form of higher criticism? Documentary hypothesis of J E P D. Four authors of the of the of the Torah. The the the, the two different names of God. And the priestly section and, the De- De- and Deuteronomy. So, what is Louis Jacobs saying here? That the traditional point of view and the higher critical point of view cannot be reconciled. They cannot be reconciled. The eighth principle of Maimonides and the Anima Amin cannot fit with JEPD. Now, the question is. Did any of the earlier sages in the pre-modern period accept ide- the idea of non-Mosaic authorship of parts of the Torah? And the answer is, if you go to Yeshiva University, you go to Yeshiva College, you have to take intro to Bible with Dr. Bernstein, you'll learn about all the times in the Mikros Gedolos where, where some of the, uh, the classical commentator, commentators have cryptic reference to sections of Torah that were not written by Moshe. The classic line in the Ibn Ezra of the Sodash Nemasar. You can read it on your own time. But that's Jacobs points these things out to tell you that, yeah, there were thinkers a thousand years ago or nine hundred years ago who were aware of problematic passages in the Torah. So, what is he suggesting then? He's suggesting a synthesis of the traditional and critical views. And in that synthesis, he adopts the traditional point of view of Torah min Hashemayim, divine revelation, but also the critical point of view of non-Mosaic authorship of the Torah. Can you get away with that? Number one, does it make sense? 
Number two, will the Orthodox let him get away with that? So answer the second question first. No. So the answer to that question is in the, in the 1950s and 60s, the answer to that question is no. In the t- in the 2000 and teens, the answer to that question is depends upon who you ask. If you read the Torah.com, you'll see a different point of view. So, the Reform, the Reform Jews, accepted documentary hypothesis and rejected the mitzvot. The Orthodox rejected documentary hypothesis and they kept the mitzvot. Although, certain of the early Orthodox scholars, like Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman, no relation to me, uh, took on higher criticism of the Mishnah, but fought against it when it came to the Torah. So we'll see that in the Orthodox world, there can be an acceptance of higher criticism of certain parts of our library here, but only certain parts of the library. Once you touch the Chamisha Chumshei Torah, you're going to get in trouble. And if you hold an official position in in, in Jewish life, you're going to get fired. And you're not going to get aliyahs. So there's going to be a, a, a real-world price to be paid for extending a critical study of Judaic text to the Chamisha Chumshei Torah. But that's that's the reality that, that Jacobs would have to face for this chapter. Yeah. It's already accepted, not accepted, but <coughs> produced in, in <coughs> Rishonim, whatever you want to say, yeah. of, of that philosophy. Well, no, even among the Rishonim, at most there are they are uh, cherry-picking passages that have a problem, like... Uh, so How could you know the, the Torah write about the Smithsonian of Amon, but Og's crib being nine cubits long? It sounds like it's written five hundred years later, talking about a museum piece. So that's one line. Ibn Ezra wasn't saying that four guys in the year seven hundred BCE wrote the Torah. He's just saying that a line here, a line there is a, a later uh, a, a addition uh, to to the text. So. The middle ground between orthodoxy and reform is to apply critical tools but make sure that you don't shake the faith. So That sounds like Rambam. Well, it, it's a lot, a lot beyond what the Rambam was ever willing to do. Now this middle ground, Jacobs is honest with himself and honest with his readers. He says it has to reject direct dictation of Torah. You can't be a critical thinker anymore and believe that Moshe received direct from Hashem every word from Bereshus to Enei Kol Yisrael. You can believe in Tormen Shemaim and revelation is a broad term, but you can't hold the old-fashioned point of view. That's Jacob's point. It's more of a big seat, uh, certain correct, correct. And there's a book about it uh, by Elliot Dorf where he goes through the shitos of all the major conservative thinkers on the matters of revelation, starting with Zechariah Frankel, through Schechter, through Louis Ginsburg, through Heschel, all the way on down, what did they really hold about revelation and the origins of the Torah? And some of them were more to the left, and some of them were more to the right. Jacobs is not holding back. He's admitting where he stands. But he says, you have to accept revelation, and he does, just not the old-fashioned way. Well, he, he, he's looking for a middle ground that, that, that he is comfortable with, not for the customers, it's for what he's comfortable with. Now, let me just read... Yes. Uh, it's for, for, to be debated when we discuss Heschel, yeah. So last week when we concluded, you talked about the essays that Hertz had written yeah. as part of his book. Right. Were any of these topics Yes, but Hertz was writing 30 years earlier at a time when 
he thought he could Hertz thought he could get away with saying that the academic study of of the ancient Near East and of the Bible has not uh, in any way uh, shaken the traditional viewpoint of direct uh, revelation and mosaic authorship. That's in the 1920s and 30s, and Hertz was a more traditional believer than, obviously, was Jacobs. Jacobs, writing in the 1950s, at this point says, I can no longer maintain the viewpoints that appear in the Hertz Chumash. Let me read a passage. Where we differ from orthodoxy is in our reluctance to draw from our belief in the holiness or uniqueness of the Torah and in its character of revelation any conclusions as to its literary genesis and the philological value of the text as it has come down to us. If all of Wellhausen's theories were correct and the Samaritans really had the better text, our faith would not be shaken in the least. In other words, the lower critics could be right and the higher critics could be right. And yet, I'm still going to put on in every single morning of my life. That's what he's saying. That the, 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 the conclusions of the academic study of the Bible in no way change my personal observance or my belief in God. That's what, that's what he's saying. Okay. Who wrote it, how it was written, is yeah. really... Irrelevant. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, the next question he deals with is biblical difficulties, which I thought was actually one of the more interesting chapters. He says there are two problems that people face with the Bible. One is scientific, scientific difficulty, the other is moral difficulty. He says scientific difficulty is not a problem at all. Don't, don't worry about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is an allegory. And anybody who's obsessing over it and over, over how many years ago the world was created is obsessing over nothing. It's not, a, it's not really an issue that needs to be addressed. For example... He gives the, the issue of the, uh, the four corners of the earth. The four corners of the earth is an expression, Abba Kanfota Aretz. But did, did the, the Nevi'im believe that the earth was uh, flat? That there really were four corners of the earth? Mm-hmm. Then it would, be a, it would be a cube. So if, if the earth is flat, then there really are four corners. But the earth is not flat. So therefore there aren't four corners. But does it really matter? Absolutely not. Why? Because when it says four corners of the earth, what do you know that means? It means the, the, the whole earth, the distant lands from Mongolia to, to, to the Greek Isles, okay? Uh, to the, the British Isles. So it's... Um, Are we use the same expression in our... Right. So, so, so therefore, terminology that is imprecise from a scientific point of view should not bother anyone. And I want to read one passage that I think is very important that I uh, subscribe to um, and I think everyone should. (laughs) Like this. It is in no part of of the belief in prophecy of faith in the divine message contained in the books of the prophets that God in some miraculous manner gave the prophets such incidental information about the physical universe to enable them to know many centuries before this was discovered by normal application of reason after a long process of scientific development that the earth was round. In other words, God didn't reveal to Moses Planck's constant or the theory of relativity, or equals mc squared. The the, the things that are discovered by science in the 19th and 20th centuries were not known by the Nevi'im. And there's no reason for anyone to have ever thought that those things would have been revealed to the Nevi'im. Therefore, if there are uh, unscientific, incidental details in the prophetic works, don't go berserk over it. It had to be that way. Okay? But yet, and yet... The problem is in fundamentalist Jewish world, you have people who think that 
Moshe Rabbeinu or Eliyahu Anavi or Rabbi Akiva knew scientific information that we know today, and therefore they re- you know, they they massage the, the, the their their explanations, their perush on certain Talmudic passages to try to fit that. Uh, but he wasn't taking AP physics. <laughs> <laughs> He saw matters of religion. Right. Okay. All right. Now, the the bigger problem. No. So on this point, on this point, he would have a receptive audience. This might not be so well received, you know, in uh, in, in the old world, and in, in maybe in parts of Gateshead or the Manchester Yeshiva. But for most of Anglo Jewry. Uh, this would have been perfectly fine. The bigger challenge is the moral difficulties of the Bible. What happens when you have a passage that is morally distasteful, like you know, exterminating the seven Canaanite nations or Amalek? What do you do with that? So here he had an answer that was uh, fairly compelling. He says that the Bible is the dialogue between God and man in which the, any imperfections that, exists are, that exist are introduced by humans. And so this spiritual development of Israel takes place in stages, and that in the long scope Jewish tradition figured out that which was eternal and that which was ephemeral. And therefore means what? All the really ugly parts of the Torah are no longer implemented, because we figured out we didn't want to implement them. That makes no sense to me. I don't understand. Okay, well, we're not killing Amalekites, we're not killing Sir Shev... Shev, uh, Today, isn't there a problem, for example, homosexuality, for example, or slavery, or white slavery? So we we haven't solved all problems, but but in practice we haven't solved all problems, but in fact, all the, the, uh, the things that your average person in this room would find immoral are themselves, you know, against the, the laws of the Torah. The problem would be if there were things that are commanded by the Torah that we would find distasteful and still had to do them, but yet we don't have that anymore. We don't have anything... I mean, maybe someone might object to chalitza because they don't like a person spitting at someone else, but basically we're not doing anything anymore that's repugnant. That's, that's his point. Okay. That that may be the case. That may that may be the case. But the bottom line is it isn't being done. For other reasons. For, uh, uh, okay. So. You're right. Yeah. So yeah. I have no All right. Now the next the next piece he talks about is the study and practice of the Torah. The study, so if, if he was non-traditional in the previous few chapters about Bible difficulties and criticism and, and mosaic authorship, he comes back to being a, a real frumi in, in this chapter. He explains that the critical methods of study are needed, uh, but we need to use those methods not simply because we're interested from an academic po- point of view in Semitic, stu- uh, Semitic topics, you know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, or even the, the Talmud, but rather because we're looking for religious truth. And here he's attacking his colleagues in academia, the, uh, the Gershom Shalom's of the world, or the others who make a career out of studying what's on the shelf, but yet are themselves personally divorced from Judaism. But that's not the point. The point is, we read the books to, to have religious life. Okay. Um, then he says something that I think the, uh, the, the, the non-traditional believers need to hear. 
sometimes in the critical study of, of Judaism, you'll find that certain mitzvot had lowly origins, or maybe even quasi-pagan origins. But in the form in which we observe them today, they're much more elevated. They are, have a very high moral expression. And so he says Judaism should not be judged by the, by the lowly origins of some of our practices, but rather by the beautiful current expression of those practices. So he gives a few examples. Tefillin, mezuzah, Hanukkah, and Purim. He says, Tefillin and mezuzah, if you read the Torah, does it actually say you have to wear black boxes on your arm and on your head? No. No. So in the old days, did Moshe wear tefillin? Did Prophet Yeshaya wear tefillin? Or was tefillin a later invention as an interpretation of the text? So the traditionalist would say, no, Moshe wore tefillin. Halach Moshe misinai. The non-traditionalist would say, I don't know, it came along at some time and may have been influenced by, uh, exter- by other cultures. It had amulets. But we just fit it into the, to the text of the Torah. And it's a reasonable fit. Doesn't matter. So he would argue, it doesn't matter that, we, that, that things are borrowed. What matters is that it's a beautiful tradition in the way it's observed now. And but when we come to... Sh- interesting observation, uh, interesting to a point. Yeah. <laughs> Where did the tefillin begin? Uh, for, for another time, for another time. <laughs> okay. Hanukkah and Purim. Hanukkah and Purim. He says, what happens if we find out that the mitzvah, of, uh, 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 the, 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 the miracle of the Pach Shemin never happened? I mean, from this rostrum, I've made that point. That it's a late Babylonian tradition, has no basis in Tanaitic literature, it's not in the Book of Maccabees. What happens if, bottom line, historically, it never happened? It's a Baba Misa. Does that mean that Hanukkah is somehow a bad holiday? No, Hanukkah is a beautiful holiday. We light candles and the family gets together and it's a wonderful experience. Then he says another thing. What happens if Megillus Esther, the story of Esther, what happens if, bottom line, it never happened? It's a myth. Okay, and there are people who believe that. Why? Because there's no external evidence outside of the Megillah itself that it ever happened. So, does that mean that Purim is evil and we should abolish it? No, Purim is a wonderful thing. And the current form of it, we, we like it. it, it teaches a valuable lesson of God's salvation, so therefore, why would we want to abolish it? We would preserve it. Can we get back up where it comes from? Does it huh? just come out of a hat? There had to be something that happened. Okay. Uh, uh, something comes from something. So, so, but, uh, the same argument. Yeah. Okay. So Jacob's point is simply this: even if you're, uh, if you accept the postulates of the critical school, don't then attack Judaism because Judaism is not what was then. Judaism is what is today. What is today is a wonderful thing. So he's defending tw- mid twentieth century Orthodox practice. You could say that about the whole Torah, though. Uh-huh. There's no empirical evidence, for example, of the T.S. Mitzrayim. Now, you may uh-huh. find a steely somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That mentioned, but there is none. I th- I, it has to be an article of faith. Article, article of faith, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, interestingly, he doesn't, t- he doesn't touch Corbanos. Whereas Hertz did, Jacob's, at least in this book, doesn't. I don't know if in some of his other books he addresses the matter. He probably doesn't because he's not really interested in stuff that is no longer in, uh, it pro- popularly practiced. He wants to deal with contemporary Judaism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, now the next topic he addresses is the chosenness of the Jewish people. This bothered some British Jews. 
on the grounds that it's chauvinistic, it's uh, elitist, that we're better than everybody else, we're superhuman, and in the, in the post-Holocaust era, it's tempting even for a good, devout Jew to wonder about notions of uh, supremacy, and, you know, given that the, Ar- the Aryans believe they were the greatest, how could we say that we're the greatest, maybe all hu- humans are equal, and he has to stress that this is not superiority in any way, it's chosenness, and that the choice is reciprocal. God chose our people, and we chose God. That we're a choosing people, in the words of Israel Zangwill as well. Okay. Um, in the epilogue that he wrote many years later, after the various rounds of the fight, the so-called Jacob's Affair had been uh, battled out, he goes through all the criticisms which were leveled against him. He says he was criticized for exposing the reader to too much heresy. Meaning, whatever you want to believe is your business, but if you know too much or if you're exposed to the, the, the points of view of others that are spiritually cont- uh, damaging, then you run the risk of liking those ideas and adopting them for yourself. So in writing this book, traditional believing Jews who didn't know any better all of a sudden know about Wellhausen, know about lower criticism and higher criticism and you know, non-Mosaic authorship, all sorts of things that, are, that from an Orthodox point of view are troubling or outright heretical. So why, why expose someone to that if they don't need to know about it? What would Jacobs respond? So he would say that, um, first of all, anyone who's reasonably educated in a Western environment is going to know these things. And there's no point in trying to hide it or brush it under the rug. Moreover, he was convinced that even with all this knowledge, Torah can still be seen as a divine revelation. So he's not bothered in the least by exposing young or even older Jews to these thoughts. Um, now, for that, on, on that point, I would disagree with him. I would say, if you want, to, if you want pe- people to be kept in the dark on matters of the academic study of Judaism, you can do that. And it happens to this very day in many parts of the Orthodox world, including even in the modern Orthodox world. You ask a typical day school kid in 11th, 12th grade, tell me something about Julius Wellhausen or about the views of Yecheskel Kaufman on the origins of the Jewish religion or the views of, uh, of Sholem or the views of uh, any of the, the, the Wissenschaft scholars of the last 200 years, they don't know what you're talking about. If they go to Yeshiva College and they take Jewish history with, with uh, Landman of, uh, Professor Landman of Blessed Memory or uh, Rabbi Reiner or Rosenzweig, they'll get a smattering of these things, but even then they don't know all that much. So it's very, very possible to keep people with the Orthodox blind faith indefinitely, indefinitely. Now, in the age of the Internet, it's not so true, because today there are Hasidim, there are thousands of Hasidim who are closet maskilim, who, who, who read... Uh, certain uh, uh, academic websites and they don't tell their spouses or their children that they have changed from the, tr- the conventional theology, but they exist. So, huh? It's no good for the shirach. And, and for that reason, I've spoken to people who hide their true beliefs that they have recently adopted because they don't want their daughters to have problems getting married. Um, They go to work every day, yeah. They, they go to work every day. They don't, uh, so some, some people some people have left uh, traditional practice in the Hasidic and, 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 and the yeshivish world because they have been exposed to the kinds of ideas that appear in this book 
in you know more modern form, um, and it's a real social problem for them because they're they're attached to their their traditional lives and traditional families, and how do they escape it? Unless they make a clean break and shave off their beard and move to Iowa, it's not a simple thing. I, I, it's a, it's a, these are real world problems that people face. So that's an well, it's an argument for suppressing information in a, in a world where that information isn't going to be favorably received, so it's only going to do damage. But you're in a world where it cannot be suppressed. It cannot be suppressed anymore. That's over. It can be suppressed. Okay. All right. you're, you're citing exceptions, I would think, to the rule. Yep. Okay. I don't think you have among the Hasidim, uh, let's say, uh, 95%. I'm just throwing out a number. Don't know anything of these sorts. Right. Correct. Okay. The, ne- the next criticism that was leveled against uh, Jacobs, he was accused falsely, at least as he sees it, of following sort of 19th century German anti-Semitic views of the Bible. In other words, the early higher critics really were trying to destroy Judeo-Christian civilization, or at least the Judeo part of of civilization, and rejecting the legitimacy and um, divine character of the the Jewish books. Solomon Schechter famously said that uh, higher criticism is just a higher anti-Semitism. Was he right? Yes, in his decades, in his generation, he was right. Some of the Germans really were Jew haters. But that was not not Louis Jacobs. Um, now, another issue that he brings up, the fundamentalists say that you can have religious belief or you can have academic scholarship, but you can't have both. And Jacobs is, is convinced that you can have both. And he was confident in the power of Judaism to survive even in an age of enlightenment. And when, when he means Judaism surviving, he doesn't mean watered-down re, uh, reform Judaism. He means observant, ritually observant Judaism could survive in an age of enlightenment and of new ideas about the origins of the Bible. Another criticism, what he, that he was trying to sell biblical criticism on, a, on a, a population that wasn't really interested in it. His response was, biblical criticism has already been sold. It's a foregone conclusion. It's not as though he's uh, being mechadish, new, uh, new ideas, and, and foisting them onto a traditional public. We're 15% of a population of Jews anyway. So he's not wrong anyway. He's not wrong. Okay. Also put it in the context, in the 50s, yeah. in the 60s, in the United States, the conservative movement was taking over. Yes. And in a certain sense, it could have easily gone over to England the same type of way. That's, it could easily have happened, but I believe, as I said last week, that Hertz's efforts to entrench orthodoxy as the establishment form of religion is why that didn't happen. Right, but the, that was the battle of the orthodoxy versus the conservative yeah. at that point. Yeah. Do you think the conservative movement in the 1950s is the same as the conservative movement today? I not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Okay, so now... I mean, if you went back to the conservatism I, of the 50s, you say, hey... Right, now, another criticism of Jacobs is that the book could have been titled, not We Have Reason to Believe, but We Have Belief in Reason. In other, in other words, that his real religion was pure reason, along the lines of the you know, 18th century Moses Mendelssohn types. He rejected that as an unfair uh, uh, criticism of the book, that he was not about pure reason. Rather, he was accepting the idea of a leap of faith, that you have to, you have to believe in God, you have to believe in divine revelation, a, a form of Torah min 
and that not everyone is up to the challenge. Not everyone has the spiritual fortitude to have that leap of faith, but he certainly wasn't relying exclusively on pure reason. Okay. Some argued that without belief in direct dictation of the five books of Moses, practical Judaism would wane. Now, this is an argument that I happen to agree with, where I would disagree with Louis Jacobs. I am firmly convinced that if among a significant population of Jews, the old world belief in direct dictation of the Torah to Moses by God is abandoned, then yes, it will be increasingly difficult to sustain rigorous observance of, the, of, ch- of challenging mitzvot. All right, it's not easy to keep the mitzvot. Uh, it's a lot easier to eat treif and not make your house kosher for Pesach and not have to worry about uh, Shabbos observance. All right, it's not... And if it's going to be hard to be a Jew, in the religious sense of the word, you're going to want to have as fundamentalist a belief as possible in the reasons why you're observing the mitzvot. Some people, the Yechidei Skula, are able to be extremely pious in their personal behavior without fundamentalist thinking. All right, Louis Finkelstein was an example of that, the former chancellor of JTS. But for the average Joe, the average Jew on the street, without a fundamentalist belief, it isn't such a simple thing to personally observe the mitzvot in their, in their demanding form of the Shulchan Aruch and to pass along that style of observance to children and grandchildren. It simply isn't such an easy thing. And Jacobs was convinced it could be done. I'm not so convinced it can be done. The evidence doesn't bear that out. Meaning, if you take if you take away uh, the uh, literal direct revelation and say that the Bereshis through Devarim is like the books of the Nevi'im and the Ksuvim, it's simply divinely inspired but authored by some guy. So the problem then is the the halacha is based upon the minutia. The exegetical, ex, exegetical derivation from the text of, of Bereshis through Devarim. So if, if the origin of that, you know, the Ur work, the original text, is not from the highest, highest possible source, on what basis are you making you know, legal nuances from the writings of a Ben Adam, as opposed to the Ribbon of Shalolam? Listen, it, it can make sense. I'm just saying that, I'm saying that as, as a religious point of view, from, from a religious point of view, it's not easy to sustain the devotion without the fundamentalist uh, perspective. Okay, a couple, two more points. Um, and here, Jacobs is spot on. It's, a, it's an unpleasant thing to have to talk about, but it's, he's, he's right on target. He said the gedolim of his generation were in no position to argue with him. Why? Since they simply don't know the topic. Now, he's right. Most of the gedolim of the pre-modern era, and when I say pre-modern, I mean like, say, pre-Holocaust era, had no academic training, didn't, were not familiar with the, with the facts of Jewish history and you know, issues concerning the origins of the Bible and the, the historical development of the halakha. It simply was not their, their topic. They were learning Shas and Poskim in the yeshivas of, of, of Eastern and Central Europe, 
and the academicians in Central and Western Europe and the Americas were learning Judaic studies. And the guys who knew Judaic studies were in a position to answer these kind of questions, but they might not have been traditional believers. And the guys who were the traditional believers didn't know the topic. So who, who can then answer these questions from a traditional perspective? Someone who combines together vast Hamudic erudition and the academic knowledge. Who had such things? Very few people in the last hundred years. It's still, still the same. Huh? Still the same. To, to this day, it's... Through all the traditional yeah. modern auto-education, through YU and everything, yeah. has almost no exposure to this. Uh, some. If they go to, uh, you know, even Bernard Revel Graduate School, which is my alma mater, you learn only a limited uh, extent of this. So you, you don't have too many people in his generation or even today who have the, both backgrounds that can uh, deal with this matter in a serious way. Yeah, you're right. Okay, now the last point for tonight for today is that he, Louis Jacobs rejects the halfway house. The... Um, the middle ground position that says we'll discuss critical study of Judaic texts for some chronological periods, but not others. So, if you remember from years back, when the first, uh, first season that we had these lectures, I said that one school of thought was learn everything from a serious academic point of view as far back as the year 586 BCE. What happened in 586 BCE? The destruction of the first temple. That first temple is untouchable. Why? It's the prophetic period, and certainly before that, the Mosaic period, the, the Torah, and the period of the patriarchs, you don't touch it. Why? Because if you touch it, you might uncover things that are unpleasant to the traditional believer. Therefore, leave it alone. Who adopted that point of view? Zechariah Frankel, who was the founder of positive historical Judaism. Others say, no, no, you can discuss the first temple period. Why? Because it's not going to hurt uh, relig- uh, Judaism one way or the other if we find that uh, the, the words of, of the book of Shmuel, the book of Malachim, are not exactly uh, in accord with the uh, historical record. Who takes that perspective? Heinrich Gretz. And therefore, Heinrich Gretz's massive six-volume history of the Jews begins with what sentence? On a bright spring morning, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. Meaning, what's off-limits? The Torah, the 40 years in the Midbar, the Avos, okay, creation. You don't touch that, because if you touched it, you might find something that the, 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 the traditionalists would find offensive. So, Frankel goes as far back as the First Temple, Gretz goes back as far as up to Joshua, but no, nothing beyond that. What is Louis Jacob saying? You're playing games if you do that. You have to be willing to cover the entire the entire history of Am Yisrael, every single book of our library, in the same rigorous manner as you would the more modern material. Because if you don't, you're being dis- intellectually dishonest. So, for example, what is why you do? So, in my days in Revel, there was no course in ancient Jewish history. At best, you could study classical Jewish history that began with the Hasmonean period. Why? Because anything before the Hasmonean period is the Tanakh. And if you touch the Tanakh, you're going to get in trouble. So you could study Bible with, with, the, with the Orthodox Bible professors, but you couldn't study Jewish history anything earlier than that. So Jacob says this is a sham. You can't do this. You have to be intellectually honest across the board, come what may. But he was of the belief that traditional practice could be maintained. I am not so convinced. Yeah. 
No, but I'm just I'm just showing you examples of people who limited their own intellectual activities out of fear of what those intellectual activities might uncover. Anybody could open up a safe and yeah, last point for tonight. No, what happened to his kids? Because a lot of times you have these forward thinking. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the fate of his children was. The related generations for what? That's usually what happens. Usually what happens. Every now and then the reverse is true. Every now and then one child goes off and, and uh, grows long past and has ten children and lives in the old city and, and is a Haredi. But, but usually you're right that the, the non-traditional believer who maintains orthodox practice does not have children or grandchildren of the same vintage. Okay, we'll stop here.